From the Orange County Fire Authority, this is the Pass Along Podcast, where we address firefighter issues from top to bottom, from your helmet down to your boots. Now, here's your host. Uh, welcome to the fourth podcast of 2021. Um, this is Kenny Dossie, Deputy Chief of the Emergency Operations Bureau. Um, today, uh, I've got a special guest from USAR Station 54, Captain Richard Ventura. Hey, Rich. Good morning. Um, we, we decided to uh, change up the podcast a little bit. Uh, like I've said in the past, this has been like a station visitation, and um, we feel like having uh, all different walks from the OCFA here is important. So uh, we called Richard in, and, and more specifically because of his uh, specialty over there, 54s, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, but first, let me uh, review again why, we, why we're doing this podcast. Uh, once again, this is a way to get the message out. Uh, with uh, 77 stations and three different shifts, it's very difficult uh, to always hear updated information. So we're hoping we get you some updated information and communicate you w- with you, not only this way, but um, we'll continue to use handbooks, SOPs, general orders, memos, ask the chief. Station visitations will continue, chain of command, but this is just another way to get the message out. So with that being said, um, the plan for today is... Uh, I'm going to introduce uh, Captain Ventura. I'll ask him a few questions. Um, he's got a few questions for me, which is a little bit different for the podcast, but I think this is going to work out good. So he'll ask me a few questions. Um, then we'll do our typical uh, review of uh, an SOP in the weeds a little bit, and uh, we'll end with a health and safety message for today. And uh, and actually, at the very end, I'll have some updates from the last podcast, a few points that we talked about and and what has changed since then. All right, um, well, let's start uh, with uh, Captain Ventura. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your fire service career? So, you know, my first job here in the fire service was feeding the horses in the fire station. And (laughs) (laughs) it seems like it's been quite that long, but I actually started uh, with the OCFA, actually OCFD in 1981 as a paid call firefighter, which isn't a term I think anybody uses anymore, but essentially it was a reserve firefighter position. Transitioned to a full-time firefighter in 1985, uh, off to medic school in 1987. I spent a little time in training as an academy staff instructor for 16 and 17. And then um, I really need to go back to the medic school thing because I had a, a long list of interns. In fact, one of them was yeah, Chief Dossie, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, promoted to captain in 2000 and... Um, reignited my specialty. I was originally involved with the USAR team as one of the first med specs, then moved into the safety officer position while I was an AFTO, and then came back to USAR Logistics really on 9-13-01, right after the 9-11s attacks. I was assigned a 54 just to kind of cover the spot there because it was open, and I decided to, um, it really changed my career, headed that direction. And um, I'm one of the logistics managers for California Task Force 5, and I'm also on the advisory panel for the national USAR system and hold the position of um, logistics functional group leader. So essentially I'm the, I'm the log section chief for the national um, USAR system. And here I sit today. Great. Thanks for that uh, introduction. And yeah, you are very involved in USAR. It seems like everywhere I went when I was on the USAR team, people knew you and were talking about you. So thanks for your service there on that. All right. So uh, question number two or for you is, um, how did OCFA get the privilege, really, of becoming um, only one of 28 USAR task forces in the United States? 
So the actual way the system evolved was really after the Mexico City earthquake and then the earthquake in the Bay Area right during the 1989 World Series. There wasn't a national response plan. They were just starting to develop one. We had some stuff in California. We were involved with a really high-profile rescue, um, our people in the Bay Area afterward. But the feds decided to build this program, and they sent out basically applications to the largest departments in the U.S., and you applied for it. So they only selected 23 out of the people that applied, and then we started the national system from there. After a few emergencies, especially after the um, Oklahoma City earthquake, teams in the central part of the uh, U.S. saw there was another need there, so that's how we got the other five. Texas, Missouri, those teams added into the system, and that's how we got to 28. So, you know, we applied as an experiment. It wasn't super well-funded. We only got like $100,000 a year in the initial application, and we had to provide matching funds, so some departments didn't get involved with it. Larry Holmes, at the time, the fire chief, decided to build our program around a multi-agency task force. So at the time, we had La Habra, Santa Ana, Orange, Anaheim as part of our task force, and obviously that's morphed down to what we have now, which is basically ourself, Anaheim and Orange City, and we're a multi-agency task force, which is pretty much the national norm. Good. Thanks for that uh, update. Um, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but what is kind of the history or maybe the evolution of California Task Force 5? Like, where are we going? Well, um, so where are we going really comes from where do we start. And I said the program wasn't super well funded. The feds were just kind of getting started with the system. And after the Oklahoma City bombing, what happened was teams that only got activated by the federal government were given special funding during the incident. So Oklahoma City happened. We were activated as a federal team. The checkbook opened for X amount of hours, and we bought a lot of our cash. And then the OCFA um, funded just a lot of local things to make it happen. After 9-11, um, the funding increased significantly. We were maintained over $1.2 million a year, and the federal cash has continued to grow. The system grew. We're not um, you know, building a hot rod in your dad's uh, garage anymore. We actually have the need to expand. We had the need to expand to like something more industrial, really supported by the department. We had to buy our own vehicles supported by, you know, the money was provided by the feds. The training requirements increased. The After 9-11 was really um, the input of funds, input of funds to really support the team where we're at now. So where are we going now? You know, obviously COVID has slowed a little things down, but the continual training standards, just in the last couple of years, we've added the water rescue operations, not only just John Boat and Stillwater, but we're also doing Swift Water. So we have now the IRBs that go with that. Um, that continues to grow. We're looking at also more oversight from the federal government. So with more money comes more questions on how we spend it. So we account for all that kind of stuff. That's a big change for us. And then we're continuing to evolve into annual evaluations. Well, actually evaluations every three years. We have annual self-evaluations. Then we have teams of SMEs that travel out to task force and they're specifically checking every single training record. They're attending evaluated exercises that we're doing. So where we're, um, where we're going to go, I mean, it's just endless. Whatever the feds want us to do, we do it. And um, Fugate, when he was the FEMA administrator, referred to the USAR program as the Swiss Army Knife of the National Response System because we will do just about anything, and we've continued to kind of support that concept. That makes a lot of sense, and, and on that same topic, something that comes up a lot is you hear that um, some of these other departments have a USAR team, but they're not one of the 28 uh, federal teams, and you hear the term state RTF 
versus a USAR federal MRP. Can you kind of explain the differences of those two and, and what exactly is going on with that? So the federal government has made it fairly clear they're not willing or they're not interested, is probably the right word to use, in adding additional USAR task forces. They're funding the 28 and that's what they support. So states are asking to build their own systems and in California we use something called the regional task force. Regional task force are usually made up of smaller departments, something let's say like Pasadena, Glendale, Downey, they form together, they have their own individual heavy rescue USAR programs, and then they form a regional task force and get on board with the state and they get typed that way. That's supposed to be like an initial attack USAR response, local, staying local. Um, the original intent is not for them to go from San Diego to state line like we send strike teams, it's meant to support the locals. And then you keep those resources close and then they're relieved by the federal task forces. And, and in California we have eight so, and they're really strategically placed throughout the state to, to support the larger incidents. So they've kind of morphed a little bit because I know they've used the TRTs or excuse me, the RTFs um, a little bit more, like you said, moving all over the place and, and, and they, they just don't have the support to continue. It's just like an initial attack. Is that? Yeah, exactly. Accurate? In fact, you have the, um, the regional task forces are really not designed for extended operations, 12, 24 hours max. They don't have the logistic support. You know, if you've seen the USAR cash, there's a significant amount of it is just shelters and things that take care of our people. The rescue portion is maybe only 25% of everything we bring. The RTFs is basically driving heavy rescue six down the road, maybe two of them with a few support personnel and in X amount of hours, they're gonna run up fuel, blades. They can't really sleep their people. They're really dependent on the local agency who's dealing with this emergency. The Fed team slash Fed state USAR teams are the ones that come in with all the support to take care of themselves for you know X amount of days. That makes sense, uh, especially after uh, going up to Paradise and seeing the state resources coming to the federal resources for support. So that's really good. Thanks for that overview um, of USAR. Uh, we'll go ahead and jump forward and um, let you ask uh, a few of your questions that you have for me, and we'll see if I can uh, I can answer them. Okay. So, uh, Chief, I got a couple things about PPE and, and basic equipment. So, the department's moving forward with they've supplied everybody with a second set of turnouts. We're, you know, buying the clean into the clean cab concept. We're really trying to emphasize the need to keep your turnouts uh, cleaned, and we can send those out and get those taken care of. And it seems like that's been really successful. My question is, what about the wildland gear or yellowomics? We only have one set. Is there any plan to maybe issue more? Okay, that's a that's a great question, um, um, specifically just for the wildland part. But yeah, I, I agree with you on the on the first topic you said there. We've come a long ways having two sets of turnouts. You know, we've got policy on it, and it's really worked out well for people making sure we're getting those out and we're getting them cleaned and taken care of, so we're not contaminating ourselves. And I I think you're right. We've come a long ways. Um, when we talk about the second set of Nomex, I haven't heard that. Um, it's, it's a good idea and concept. Now, I know that the wildland jackets are supposed to be used for just wildland. They're not supposed to be worn on TC cutters or uh, medical aids. They're not designed um, for that. Um, we can wash our wildland uh, Nomex at the station. So uh, that makes it a little bit easier. So that might have been part of the decision behind it. But we can, we can go into that and, and find out what the specifics are. But since you brought that topic up, I know there's been some changes with our wildland gear. 
Um, the equipment committee uh, uh, did some research on what we were wearing and what was the safest for us. And um, they actually uh, went into a study that was done by the U.S. Forest Service, CAL FIRE, Homeland Security, and the U.S. Army Soldier Research uh, combined together to, to come up with what's the best for uh, wildland firefighting. And our equipment committee reviewed that and said, hey, this, is, uh, this makes sense. This is what we should do. They call it Generation 2. It's, it's a second level or a newer wildland jacket. And you'll see some out there. So the department, uh, the equipment committee suggested that the department bought into it. At the time, the funding was set aside for through attrition. So uh, talking to Russ down in the service center, he said about 40 to 50% of our department has the new Generation 2 wildland top. Um, and it's a little bit better in protection, but it really focuses on the heat illness aspect of it. So as your jacket wears out, you turn it in and you get a new one. The pants, the BDUs that we use are the BDUs that were recommended from uh, this committee uh, and, and the, the group that got together. So we're looking good there. I know everybody does have two sets of those or should have two. If you don't, make sure you get another set. So. Um, to answer your question, uh, we'll figure it out for the next, for getting two sets, potentially. But for right now, we're working on getting everybody their uh, uh, Generation 2 wildland coat. Okay, thanks, Chief. Um, you know, it kind of uh, morphs into my next question, which is, can you review how the equipment committee actually is given issues or takes on issues that changes what we buy in the agency? Another great question that kind of overlaps with that first question. Um, so we have an equipment committee right now. They're uh, very active. The chair of the committee uh, currently is uh, Division Chief Ron Roberts. Um, and you say to yourself, who's on this committee? Uh, Local 3631 has a rep. The COA has a rep. They try to specifically pick someone from all ranks. Uh, they have someone from purchasing on there, so they uh, don't cross a line and do something they're not supposed to do. They have a rep from training and safety. And then I know there's some others on there off the top of my head. I'm not really sure what the rest of the makeup is, but it's a pretty big and diverse group. I know Cameron Daniels is uh, kind of the uh, lead behind uh, the chair, and he helps with what's going on. And so your question is, you know, what, what is their role? So anyone in the organization can go to the equipment committee and say, hey, I've got an idea. This is what I think. I, th I think we need a, a, a better gadget, whatever that gadget might be. And their job is to sift through uh, what the gadget is. Do we actually need it? Is it just something that's a fad that someone says is a great idea and they want to put it on the engine of the truck and it, it really hasn't been thought through? So you bring it to the committee and you can actually, they've made it easy. You can actually go on the hive and they have a website and you can put in your ideas directly so the equipment committee will get them. Now, if you think you can just be the good idea guy and walk away from it, that's not the case. The equipment committee will contact you um, and then say, hey, we see that you put this in here, what's the history behind it, and can you come down to the equipment committee and give a presentation? So usually a 10 minute presentation to them and, and they're, they kind of sift through the items. I actually sat on the committee for a few years and it was amazing how many things come through and just in the group, equipment committee, coffee table talk almost, you'd say, good idea, but we're not doing that. And so they'd sift through some things. Other things they thought were a good idea or they weren't sure about, we would say, hey, let's put together a focus group. 
And the focus group would take the item aside and uh, get some subject matter experts, research it, find out what different brands there are, what the pros and cons were, and what the costs were. Bring it back to the committee, and the committee would decide yes or no. If they said no, it would be shelved, and it would, it, would, it would go away. If they said yes, they would bring it to executive management and say, hey, executive management, this is what we have. This is a great idea. This is uh, how it would replace what we're doing. Do we have the funding? So it's either really a yes or a no from the equipment committee, which are the subject matter experts. Um, it does take some work. Um, it, 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 some, some of these projects, uh, the new um, truck equipment, uh, Hearst tools and all that, that was, a, that was an item that went to the equipment committee and you know, it was a long duration. They wanted to make sure that they came up with what they thought was the correct pieces of equipment. Then we got to find funding and then we got to implement it. Just like I said earlier on the PPE jacket, it was the same process. At the time, the only funds available were through attrition. And that's what we try to do, generally speaking. If we have something that's good on the shelf in the service center, we've got 10,000 sets of wildland gear, whatever the case may be, we don't want to just throw all those away. Some, some uh, sellers will say, hey, we'll buy your old stuff off the shelf, and you know that's all a negotiation. So that's how it works. It should be pretty straightforward. You can definitely get frustrated with it. That's great information. I know it's all in the hive, and just clarifying where it comes for you in the process, because I know sometimes there's frustration on why doesn't this stuff get taken care of. You know, one of the items is for follow-up specifically is our rain gear. Um, and it has to do with the fact that I know we have rain gear. That was vintage. I think Chief Dean was the ops chief when <laughs> we actually purchased that stuff. Um, and there's so much better stuff out there. In fact, do you, does executive management get the same rain gear that we use? Yes, I've got the same gear as you, and I never use it. <laughs> well, I mean, there's uh, some of the agencies we've taken over before, too, have combination rain gear, foul weather, and we have gone through the, the, the uniform jacket thing how many different times since I've been here, um, is the process to replace that stuff. So newer items, I know the equipment probably gets inundated with the good idea stuff that comes in, but that's just one of those items. Are we just going to stay with it forever, or do you see them maybe tackling that issue? Or is, there, is this one of the things I need to submit in writing so we can get some follow-up done on it? That's a good question, and, and I'm, I'm glad you asked me that one specifically because I am as guilty as anybody. Um, I was on the committee when the, uh, we, this was being presented to us. Um, we evaluated what uh, types of new – not officially. We didn't do a focus group. We talked about it amongst everyone, and, every, and, and the thought process at the time was our ring gear seems to be fine. Uh, it keeps you dry. We know that there's way more expensive stuff out there. I think it was $90 a set at the time, and the newer ones were like 500 And so the equipment committee at that time, this is years ago, we squashed it. So to answer your question, yeah, if you think we need better rain gear or newer rain gear, the equipment committee would be the first stop. Submit something there, be prepared to do a presentation, and we'll take it from there. And I guess the follow-up to that also is um, same thing you mentioned, and we just, I just said myself, if you, if you want to bring it up, you need to be willing to spend some time with the commitment committee chasing these issues down or maybe being the SME that they can use for some uh, direction. Yeah, and, and I know all firefighters are type A and we know how to get stuff done and we normally get stuff done quickly, but uh, this is a big machine and, and a lot of times there's uh, it, it doesn't go as fast as we all want it to go, for sure. All right, thank you. Chief, I know the fire chief just happened to cover on the Ask the Chief segment some of the things going on with facilities, but do you have any other information to add to that that was 
probably has been some changes just in the last 30 days. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that the information is much different. I did watch the latest Ask the Chief, which was a couple days ago, and I saw that he elaborated on um, a lot of these things. And hopefully you guys watch that and can get the specifics. But um, I can tell you off the top of my head, um, the number one project is Fire Station 24 replacement. And those of you that are familiar with 24s, uh, they've got that huge piece of property uh, up behind the fence. It's now fenced off. Um, that is going to be all part of the station design. They're going to they're going to make a station there that's gigantic. It's going to you know be, actually be built for the future. Uh, the, the anticipation is we're going to move truck nine over there, so it'll be a truck. It'll be USAR. Um, it's going to be exciting. And those of you that are familiar with twenty fours know that that is a big piece of property. So that's number one. Uh, that's supposed to go to station design or build on um, I think the twenty first of October sometime in October. Um, Fire Station 10, long overdue. We've had this conversation for years. You're uh, familiar with it just like I am. Um, they think they finally found a spot. Um, there's some environmental concerns. Um, the city is motivated. The seller is motivated. They've got developers that are potentially motivated. We think we're in a really good spot right now. So that's number two. Um, everyone's heard about the RFOTC, the North 40. Uh, we're going to do some work out there and expand. Um, they've got a plan in place, and the board's expecting to um, approve some stuff to move forward on that. And I'll end it with the, the two more, Station 12 and Laguna Woods. Um, there's some talk about a spot there that they found. It doesn't sound like it's a very large piece of property. So when I say when we build new stations, we're always trying to build for the future. I'm not sure we can do it there. But as everyone's aware, there's a need to, for call load volume alone to put another station in there. So that's, uh, I'd say, number four. And number five would be uh, Station 49. Those of you who watched the last board meeting saw that the Station 49 uh, app bay uh, concrete needs to be replaced. There's some concern whether it's moving off the hill or it's not. Um, we're moving forward with that. Uh, the concern was, can the crew still live there while the construction is going on? And the answer is yes, and, and we'll evaluate that as it's going on. If for some reason they can't, then we'll have to think about what we're going to do as far as the location. But we think we're going to be good. So off the top of my head, that's <clears throat> kind of the top five. I know uh, that on Ask the Chief, they talked about 52s and Irvines and 67s and Rancho Mission Viejo. And let me just add to 67s and Rancho Mission Viejo, when we activate that station to be um, put in service, the builder is also um, going to be giving us a truck company. And the initial thought is, well, we probably don't need a truck there, but maybe at 56s. So maybe we'll have a truck 56. We know that truck coverage is light down in South County. So um, that's the anticipation there is to take that uh, builder truck or uh, developer truck and move it over to 56 is to help with the uh, truck coverage. And then I'll end with station nine. Um, you know, the, uh, where truck nine's coming from over there in Mission Viejo, built probably pretty close to the same time as 24. That one's been pushed back a little bit. Um, there will be more room once the truck moves. So I'm not sure where that is on the on the list, but uh, that's always a, a question that comes hand in hand with 24. So I don't know if that answers your questions or, or helps fill in some of the blanks between this and Ask the Chief, but that's kind of where, where we stand right now. Oh, Chief, I appreciate the update on that. It's, uh, it's just, I don't think we can get enough of that info on, on changes in the agency. Uh, a question I have for you though is, can you give us an update on what's going on with the uh, staffing ad hoc committee? 
Yeah, um, another good question, and it seems to be a really popular topic when I'm out in the stations, is just what's going on with staffing? Where, where are we at? Um, why am I getting forced? Why have the forces increased? Uh, what's going to happen here during wildland season, which has already started? So I'll just kind of combine all those together, as, uh, and I'll start with we're not alone, um, as I talk to my counterparts and other agencies uh, here in Southern California, and and really nationally, and I'm sure, uh, Captain Ventura, you've talked to some people across the nation, and uh, there's definitely some staffing issues going on up and down uh, or across the United States, and we're no different than anybody else. So we threw this ad hoc committee together, and we thought, hey, this is a great opportunity to take a look and see what we're doing and to see if what we're doing can be tweaked at all to make it better um, for, for my purposes is to put people in the seats. Um, but for a different perspective, probably from your perspective, is, um, you know, reduce the amount of times I'm getting forced. So uh, anybody that knows our staffing system, it's, it's very complex. Um, it's had lots of changes over the years. And um, some of them good, some of them maybe not so good. And that's what this committee was put together for. We put it together and we said it was, it was two days so far. We've had one meeting, the same meeting both days, and we had a great turnout from the participants. And uh, I... I I'll go over some of the some of the items that they talked about, but the intent of this meeting was to share information, um, give a history of staffing to everybody, so they kind of understood it, an education, if you would, um, and then get feedback from everyone and try to create some ideas and see where we stand. Um, a lot of the issues are going to be meet and confer with the local, and the local was in there and they were represented at the meetings along with the COA, and 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 that's great. But I'll I'll, I'll start with this. The five biggest reasons for uh, overtime um, is workers' comp, vacations, sick time, out-of-county incidents, and open positions. So when you, when you sit back and you think about that, there's a lot of other little minor uh, problems, but when you think about that, workers' comp, we really can't control too much vacations we don't want to reduce people's ability to take vacations although in 2020 nobody took vacations so that helps staffing sick time we don't want you know if you're sick we want you to stay home if you're sick um out of county incidents we've reduced the amount of people we've sent out of county um this year as compared to last year and really as compared to in years in the past i know this agency sent nine strike teams out before and and now we're going to probably limit it to two this uh, fire season unless it's our neighbor and then the last one is open positions, and that's in all ranks. Um, we've been hiring 50 in an academy for uh, since 2017, two academies a year. Uh, we all know the training grounds weren't really built for 50 in academy, but we've done it. We've been approved through the board to do it. We've also been approved to overhire. Uh, currently today, we have four additional BLS firefighters, so we're overhired and we're running with them on, a, on an extra unit. So we're doing everything we can to fill those positions uh, for openings and at the same time try to promote. Um, and most people understand that when we promote, whether it's captains or engineers, where do they come from? Firefighter paramedic rank. So that's what we really need. We need to fill more firefighter paramedics, hence the next academy. Academy 53 is going to be firefighter paramedics. And I've been reporting on that. This is one of my report outs and at the end of this uh, podcast. But we're at 27 right now, firefighter paramedics. And since we're still short, 
overall, we've added some BLS firefighters in there too. So we're going to run an academy with more than 27 in it. We're going to try to get it up close to 50 and, um, and move forward. Um, so some things from the ad hoc committee without boring you to death. Um, these are suggestions. These aren't my suggestions. These are suggestions that we've taken in. Uh, number one thing, continue to hire more firefighters and more firefighter paramedics. Um, a suggestion was have a lateral academy and maybe shorten the lateral academy. Uh, send paramedics to different paramedic schools, which we've started doing. You have a choice now. You can go to OCEMT. You can go to Saddleback. You can go to uh, uh, Palomar, they're adding. And you can go to UCLA. So that's good. Um, promote people when someone's on workers' comp and fill in behind was an idea. Total hours worked came up was one of the hot topics. So part of the part of the committee wanted that, and the other half of the committee did not want it. And it was a pretty pretty heated debate back and forth. They want a staffing that has two separate lists, and someone else said maybe three separate lists. So a force, an availability, and a combination of them. And, and they gave details on it. Uh, one suggestion was force people to go to paramedic school. So just, you know, when the firefighter gets off probation, you're going whether you like it or not. And I know there are other agencies that do that. Um, some people said add more VPs and some said take away more VPs. A suggestion was to work the unlimited amount of days, as many days as you can work in a row, uh, just open it up. Work four, I think it was work four overtimes and you get a force exemption or three overtimes and you get a force exemption. Um, just, just some of the ones I have off the top of my head, there was all kinds of ideas. And basically what we did is we, 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 we listened to them all. We're going to sit down and sift through them. We'll figure out what is meet and confer, and we'll try to tweak our system to, if we can, or maybe we'll leave it the same to see if, uh, we can make it better. And, and I'll end with what I took away from it was, and this is kind of simplifying it is we have 33 and a third percent of our personnel on duty in a day we should have 66 and two-thirds off duty and we've got uh, all kinds of charts and data that shows that number drops down to somewhere between 20 and 40 percent available to work and that's for a variety of reasons some of them have listed some of them i haven't but you know what we need to do is make sure that we have people in in stations in the you know butts in the seats and that we're um uh, have constant staffing and we're meeting our response times. That's what we're here for. So that's the difficulty there in our new system. There seems to be a lot of ways that you have to get off or to block yourself off. And that's what we're kind of looking at right now. I don't know if that helps or that answers your question, Captain Ventura, but that's kind of what's going on with it. I think it does. I mean, at this point, any information we can get about ongoing staffing issues, um, facts, get away from kind of the urban legend thing. I think that's helpful. So thanks. Oh, no problem. And, and I talked briefly about what we have out of county. And I, let me just elaborate what I have today because I've got it right here in front of me. We've got 15 people on overhead out right now. We have a strike team out. We have a dozer out and the CH-47 uh, and the actually the entire QRF uh, program is all out. The Dixie Fire is burning right now. And the Cal, Caldar, I don't know if I said that right or not, has just uh, acted up. So we... We are participating, we are helping out, um, but we're not sending out as much as we used to. All right, so that's... All right, um, now comes the part where I review one of the newer SOPs. Uh, this is the Tactical Firefighting uh, Operations SOP, 
And uh, what this SLP is about is when you're responding to a uh, fire in, in a law enforcement environment. And this is happening more and more. I know over the years we've had some of these incidents. Um, so we thought, you know, we need to have some sort of SOP, some sort of standard when we go out there. Uh, giving the law enforcement our SCBAs is, is not a good idea. Um, having law enforcement give us their guns is not a good idea. So we, we laid out this uh, SOP, and it's real brief, but it gives you a good framework uh, for the safety of our people. So um, I'll go over here quickly, and, and then hopefully you guys at the station level can take a look at it and dive into it. Like I said, it is brand new. So we're not going to let law enforcement conduct interior fire attack, right? We're not going to uh, let them wear our SCBAs, and that's kind of the first little line right there. Um, these are law enforcement-driven incidents. Um, they're definitely a challenge for everyone. Uh, there you have a list of definitions here, cold zone, warm zone, hot zone, very something that's very similar for us. Um, but a, a takeaway for me is the first arriving fire officer, he's going to have to go into unified command with the law enforcement agency and see what's going on and help with the development of an IAP or, or the plan initially and then taking into consideration the safety of our people. That's got to be number one. Um, they can definitely be uh, very dynamic. Um, frequencies are usually a problem. Um, so we'll have to come up with some sort of frequency plan. I think that would be a an obligation on the part of our people. Um, determine the survivability based on what's burning. If there's a burning that's, there's a building that's completely well involved and a, a barricaded suspect, you know, you as the fire, or us as the fire department needs to, to give that information to PD so they know what's going on. Help them establish their objectives, like I said earlier. And then we need to think about what we're going to wear on these. And, you know, we do have our ballistic vests and our helmets. Um, they can be worn in these situations based on what's going on, but we don't want to have those on if we end up doing any type of internal firefighting. This is more of a surround and drown and, and, and take, this, take the safety aspect of it. So without me going into too much more detail on that, um, this is a good one for crews to pull out and review, um, talk about the stuff that I just talked about, uh, how the safety of our people, what's important, where's the cold zone, and what we're going to do, and what the plan is developed in the communications part of it. All right, this brings us to uh, almost the end of the podcast. Uh, every single podcast, we've talked about a health and safety update or some sort of message, which um, I feel is super important. And this one... I'll leave it with LCES, uh, you know, lookout, communications, escape routes, and safety zones. Um, you know, we're in the, the, the middle of the, the wildland season right now, and it's definitely turning out to be as predicted. Um, we've got a lot of resources out. Um, who knows what's going to happen down here in Southern California as we move forward. We need to really focus on LCES. I mean, there's a lot of wildland tactics and strategies that go into to every incident we go into, but just to keep it on the basic level, lookout. You, you gotta have one. And, and don't just take the newest person and make them the lookout. Take someone that's experienced, that can understand um, what's going on and, and fire behavior. Um, and then they gotta have communications. And you gotta have communications with everybody. Not only communications with your crew, but communications with the divisions next to you. Um, super important to be on the correct frequency. Um, escape routes. Always have an escape route. I mean, I remember humping up and down the line and captains barking out to me when I was a firefighter. If something goes wrong, we're going left or we're going into the burn or we're going to do this. Because escape route can't be something that you start with. I mean, it can be something that you start with, excuse me. 
but it's got to change as the incident changes, whether it's the fire behavior or the location that you're at. So um, always be thinking about those. And, and the last one, the simple one is the safety zone. You know, what's your big area? What's your, maybe even your TRA? What are you doing and where are you going to go that's safe for everybody? Um, I know this is pretty basic review. Um, it's just a reminder for everybody. It's, it's an important start. And especially uh, now that we're in the midst of, of this uh, uh, fire season. This is great information to review again. Um, you know, and it's, it's in there, but emphasizing that it's okay to ask why we're doing this. It's okay to ask questions. We look at the, I love that book, the Esperanza fire, cause it's just a trust, but verify explanation of what happened there. And sometimes, you know, captains or whoever they are get bullied into, okay, we're doing this whole thing. When deep down, you're not comfortable with what's going on either because you don't have the proper level of training or you don't have the whole plan. And it's okay to ask questions. We're not talking about defying the order. It's just like, hey, Chief, I don't understand why we're doing this. Maybe the objectives weren't laid out clearly, but it's okay to question, um, especially with the level of um, experience we either do not have or we do have. You know, the, the rookie firefighter who spent 12 years in the Forest Service is probably the best guy I could use. And if I, we've heard his stories before, I neglect his, um, his input. I'm looking at skipping by somebody that has much more experience than I do in the situation. It's okay to ask questions and get your responses from your crew. Yeah, I think that's really good. And, and, and what you say is expected. We want our employees asking those questions. Um, so everybody's on the same page. We don't want you having a question and not asking it. So that's really good. And to, po to touch on your point on, uh, we kept new people in new positions. We've hired 507 people since 2017. So half of our department is, uh, is new since the last, what, five, five and a half years. So we have some newer individuals out there. So Yeah, it's some amazing numbers. Yeah, that's a really good point. All right, um, I'll end the podcast with a couple updates from the last one. Uh, last one, I talked about the HAZMAT and TRT trial, um, what we're doing with uh, staffing those units. Um, so far, it's going along smoothly. We had a couple little bumps here or there, um, some positives and some negatives. We'll continue to evaluate that for the trial. Academy 53, like I talked about earlier, uh, starts next week. So right now we're at 27 firefighter paramedics. I know that's what everybody's interested in. And then the rest are filled in with firefighter BLS. And then the firing SOP we talked about last podcast is almost done. It's just in the final uh, works. Uh, Chief Johnson is working on that. So look for that to be out soon. Uh, thanks. Uh, I appreciate uh, you coming here today, Captain Ventura, and, and, uh, and sharing with me. Uh, not only your experience, but the stuff that you have going on over there in USAR. Um, everybody be safe out there, and uh, we'll see you next time.